you want to grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't own a hard copy of the Scriptures, I'd be glad for you to take that one home with you. If you didn't come in with a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to leave with one. Uh, we really want everyone to have a copy of the Word of God. And if you didn't on the way in, hopefully you will when you leave. Uh, we uh, are going to begin today, uh, as Pam referenced, our uh, Advent series that's starting a week late within the traditional flow of Advent. So uh, Advent officially started last week, but every seven years there's this weird thing where Christmas falls on a Sunday and it uh, perplexes pastors everywhere as to what we're going to do and how we're going to make this work. And so uh, what we decided to do this year, we always forget every seven years what we did the last time around too, which is really, we should probably write it down. But anyway, um, so what we're going to do this time around is uh, we will have our fourth Sunday of Advent actually be Christmas Sunday, which is technically not the way the church calendar works. But uh, because we're doing Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we're going to do those two services identically. Um, that will be both the fourth Advent candle as well as the Christ candle as we welcome Jesus and uh, celebrate his coming. And so we're going to do that kind of all together. As Pam said, the, the um, Christmas Eve services and the Christmas Day services will be the same. I, a few of you have said, oh, I wanted them to be different because we want to do Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And I would just say there's going to be new people there all the time. So it's always different. It's just it's the same message. It's okay. I have to hear it three times. You can hear it three times too. No big deal. So uh, we're going to uh, join together. What we really do hope for is that between having all of those uh, the same, you'll be able to have time with your family as well as to be able to serve and plug into the community and be able to gather with God's people and worship. So hopefully you'll be able to do all of that uh, during those slots as we journey together. So our goal this year through Advent is to journey with the Advent candles as they're read each week and uh, kind of meditate on the ideas that are contained within them. So today we looked at the candle of love and we're going to look into that and then we'll be doing, uh, as we kind of walk through, we'll be looking at hope and peace and joy in subsequent weeks as we, uh, as we go through. I was having a conversation this week that has um, been bouncing around in my head for the last couple days, and so I'm going to give it to you so it can bounce around in your head a little bit. Um, the statement that was made to me was uh, roughly, I'll paraphrase, but it was roughly this statement. We need to know, we, we need to define what success is, because otherwise, no matter where we find ourselves or what we've accomplished, we'll feel like a failure if we don't know what it means to succeed. Now, that was, that was pretty profound. Um, as I was processing that, I thought, that's a, that's a really good thought. Like, if we don't know the goal, wherever we are, we could be doing really, really well. But if we don't know that we've achieved the goal, we won't know that we've gotten to that thing that we've established as success. So it becomes really important to establish, what does it mean to succeed? What does it mean to reach the, what's, what's the goal that we're moving towards? So I started to think about that within the Christian life. I thought, what's it mean to succeed as a Christian? Well, the Sunday school answer, which also has the benefit of being the right answer in this instance, is to be like Jesus, right? Like, just be like Jesus. That's what our goal is. Our, our success is to be like Jesus. The problem with that is Jesus was walking around among us 2,000 some odd years ago, and the way that we all, and I don't just mean the we here, but I mean the church broadly across the world, interprets what it means to look like Jesus is a little different in every circumstance. And so it's tough to just say, um, pursue Jesus. That doesn't give us a real, a, a real concrete goal. And so I thought, well, for the sake of our time today, if we're gonna like, try to summarize Jesus in a word, 
what would that word be? Now, we could take a bunch of different thoughts, and you'd probably have some different ideas, but I'm the one with the microphone, and I have the um, movement. So um, we're, we're going to use the word love because the Bible actually says that God is love, that, um, that love is defined by God himself, not God kind of fitting the characteristic of love, but God actually defines love. He is love, and Jesus himself embodies the fullness of love of God among us. But love is tricky. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you think about what you love, there's a great variety. Like if you've been around for a while, you know I love burritos and ice cream at night. Those are like big things for me. I also love my wife and my kids. I love sitting by the fire and reading books in the winter. And I love buffalo wings because buffalo wings should be in there, right? That's good stuff. Like I love all of those things. And Jesus is defined by love. And so it just stands to reason to me that if the same emotion that I feel towards buffalo wings is also the definition of Jesus himself, we probably have a problem, right? Like there's, there's something, uh, there's a disconnect in there. And so, so love gets to be this very broad term within uh, our English language, but very specifically defined by Jesus himself. The case I'd like to make for you today is that success in following Jesus is living a life of love that is defined by the way that Jesus loved us. And I want to try to unpack that for you. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Melinda's going to come and read for us Matthew 1, 18 to 25. The birth of Jesus Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you, Melinda. Would you pray with me? Jesus, in the moments that we have left, would you speak your truth to us? Would you help us to be shaped by who you are, what you're doing, and what you've spoken to us? God, help us to be people who take this familiar story and hear from your spirit in a new way today. And so, God, Guide my words that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain so that we would be changed increasingly into your likeness. Pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. 
So I know this is a familiar story, one that you've heard a bunch, and that's part of the process of Christmas, right? We tell these stories again and again. Um, but my prayer is that you would see it maybe a bit differently this morning as we look at it from the point of view of love. Um, I want to look first at the context that Matthew writes in. I think it's really important to recognize uh, where Matthew placed the story and how. So we're going to look at the context. We're going to look at one of the points. There's lots of things that we could pull from this, but uh, for the sake of time today, we'll look at a singular point and then an application of that point. So the context, the point, the application, pretty straightforward. So the first thing I want you to see is that verse 18 comes after those 17 verses that you always skip in your Bible reading plan, Right? So uh, you're looking at me like you don't, but you know you do. When you look at those first 17 chapters, you start to read, you get like verse 1, verse 2, and then you're like, oh, all of these names. Oh, my goodness. And then you just skip down till the names stop, and then you start reading. That's the way we do the Bible reading plan because the genealogy names don't mean a lot to most of us, right? They're just, they're names. But to Matthew's original readers, they actually meant quite a bit. They were the, the story of Israel. They were the history of those people at that time all the way up until that moment. So they represented history. They also represented something else, a mess. Like th this, these names are full of problems. You have liars and cheats. You have adulterers and murderers. You, you have a mess. You, you have a story that has unfolded over thousands of years of a people gone wrong. So if you go all the way back to Adam and Eve before this genealogy began, but would have, would have been very familiar to Matthew's original readers, you see Adam and Eve walking away from God and you see Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 marking kind of this move away, a devolution away from God, further and further and further away from him. And then God acts on behalf of his people by calling a man named Abram. That's the beginning of the genealogy, and that's the beginning of the Jewish story. He calls this man Abram, who's renamed Abraham, and the plan is that Abram would be the path through which the blessing of God would flow, and he would restore the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven through the family of Abraham. When he calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm gonna bless you so that you and your family would be a blessing to all nations. That's the plan. And if you read the story, you know that they didn't just fail, they dramatically failed. They were not able to do what God had intended for them to do. They continually fell short in God's plan for them. And then, through the rebellion of the nation of Israel, God started to use a different line, a different pathway, and began to call kings. So if you remember, kings came in Israel because Israel wanted to have a king like all of the other nations, and so God redeemed their rebellion by utilizing kings and giving them that same charter that they would bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, that they would uh, build a kingdom that didn't oppress people, that brought freedom and love to people, that they wouldn't amass wealth and they wouldn't amass slaves and oppression, they wouldn't amass weapons of warfare, but rather they would be a, a, a vehicle for the kingdom of God on earth. And if, again, if you know the story, they massively failed at it, so much so that the judgment of God came and they were dispersed. The nation was broken up into little pieces and spread all around the known world at the time. This was part of the story of Israel. So if you're reading through and you're just reading through the genealogy, you get to a place a couple names up where all of a sudden the nation of Israel, scattered as it was, is under Roman oppression now, 
and is seeking for something, longing for something. And then you get to chapter, uh, sorry, verse 18, and you think, like, okay, all of this mess is back here, right? Like, this is a bunch of brokenness, a bunch of difficulty, a bunch of uh, really bad stuff. So you get to verse 18, and you think, Matthew's going to tell us good news. So Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, on this side of history... That sounds like the quaint Christmas story that we all know and love to tell. But on that side of history, this is more mess, right? Like it went from the, the family of Abraham not fulfilling their destiny to the kings not fulfilling their destiny to the exiled people not fulfilling their destiny. And now all of a sudden we have an unwed mom who has tension with her soon-to-be-wed-to husband, who isn't sure that he wants to marry her anymore because he knows that baby's not his because he may be an ancient person, but he still knew how babies came, right? He still, like, understood that that wasn't mine, right? And so we have a problem here. We have more mess that's happening as this story unfolds. And so what happens? Well, an angel comes to talk to Joseph. Why? Because all the guys said it would need to be an angel, right? Like, that would be necessary for me to be able to kind of move, move past this thing. So the angel comes, and the angel has this really interesting uh, message to give to Joseph and ultimately to Mary. And that is this. God is coming to be with you. Matthew ties the message of the angel specifically to the prophet's who are declaring his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Now, why is that so important? Well, Jesus shows up in the midst of the mess. Jesus shows up in the midst of the broken line, in the midst of all of the ugliness, in possibly the most difficult way that you can imagine. Here is an unwed mom that is about to have her first boy in poverty under Roman oppression. Like, his life could not have been really great as a child, right? Like, there's a bunch of stuff stacked against him. And yet, this is where Matthew places the story. You know, Matthew could have started the, the passage right at verse 18. He didn't have to put it in the midst of this genealogy. But what I think Matthew is trying to tell us is that one after another after another, there, there was brokenness in the midst of the nation of Israel. And when Jesus came in, he didn't come into a clean, sanitized place. He came in in the midst of the brokenness. He came in in the middle of all of that. So why is that a big deal? Well, I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter or uh, social media uh, engaging either um, with your words or just standing back and observing the political discourse of our day, which is just so wonderful. I hope you spend lots of time that. Just kidding. I hope you don't spend any time doing that. But if you do, um, one of the things you'll notice is that um, both the right and the left have a very specific plan for how we should get out of this mess, Right? This is a very complex world we live in, and if you listen to anybody on one side or the other, they have a plan. The other side definitely disagrees with it, but they have a plan. Just do this, um, pass this law, vote this way, everything's going to be good. And the other side says the exact opposite. Pass this law, do this thing, vote this way, and it'll be good. 
And the reality is, neither one of those things is going to lead us out of the mess, but the whole, uh, the, the whole way the conversation is uh, postured is this is the way out of the mess. If you go to a bookstore and you go to the self-help section of the bookstore, whether it's psychology or sociology, you're going to see a whole stack of books, and they're going to say, do these three things, or these five things, or these seven things, and this is going to get you out of the mess. If you just follow this pathway, it's always odd numbers, three, five, seven, I don't know why that is, but whatever, 11 things. Do, do these things, and it'll lead you out of the mess. Even books and uh, programs that I'll, I'll just call them pseudo-Christian that are tied to uh, the name of Jesus as part of kind of the foundation of what they're doing will say the same thing. If you just follow this pathway, if you just do these things, you'll have your best life. You'll be able to step into uh, blessing and prosperity and goodness if you just follow these steps. Everybody's trying to lead us out of the mess, but Jesus joins us in the middle of the mess. Do you see how different that is? Jesus doesn't come and say, here's the way out, here's the way to fix it. He comes and says, I'll join you right in the middle. As Peterson translates John's words that we looked at last week, he took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Like, he, he came in the midst of us, in the midst of the brokenness. Like, whatever your story is, and however bad it seems at any given time, it's not worse than what Mary and Joseph were experiencing. It's not worse than what Jesus was born into. He wasn't afraid of the mess. He came into the middle of the mess. There's a writer named Giovanni Papini. You don't have to remember his name, but he uh, wrote a, a fascinating, uh, colorful, but I think clear description of what this looks like. Look at the way he says it. It was not by chance that Christ was born in a stable. What is the world but an immense stable? where men produce filth and wallow in it? Do they not daily change the most beautiful, the purest, the most divine things into excrement? Keep going. Then stretching themselves at full length on the piles of manure, they say they are, quote, enjoying life, unquote. Upon this earthly pigsty, where no decorations or perfumes can hide the odor of the filth, Jesus appeared one night. Imagine that. Jesus shows up in the middle of the mess, both literally in the, the, the stable itself, but even more metaphorically in the midst of the mess of Israel. So what does that mean for us? Well, if you've been around church for a while, that's not news to you. You're not shocked by the fact that Jesus came into a difficult situation. But we, we very rarely take it all the way to our difficult situations. Like Jesus came into that difficult situation 2,000 years ago. But do you recognize that Jesus wants to come into your difficult situation right now? That the, the, the invitation that Jesus is offering isn't to fix it. It's to come to him. To recognize that he's there in the middle of the mess. That all of the brokenness, it, it's, it's not... It doesn't put him off. He understands. And some of you are maybe are quick to say, yes, he came into the brokenness, but he came in to lead us somewhere. He came up to do something. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to get there. But I think it's well for us this first week of Advent to just stop and remember Jesus came in the middle of it, in the middle of all the brokenness. He didn't run away from it. He didn't wait for it to get better. 
He came right in the middle of the mess. As we walk through this Christmas season, as we consider what does success look like? If success is defined, I need to know what it is so that when I get there, I know that I've achieved it. And Jesus being love is that version of success. I think there's two ways that we could say, at the very least, this is what it looks like for us to step into that pathway this Christmas season. The first one is really simple. It's opening our lives up to him. So recognizing that Jesus isn't afraid of the mess and humbling ourselves enough to say, I don't have to clean it up first. I don't have to sanitize it. I I can invite him in. For many of us, we tend to have this idea that Jesus um, is bringing a necessary boost to our otherwise pretty good lives. He's, He's an improvement project that can help us to get to the next level. But Jesus doesn't desire to improve us. He desires to transform us. And that means opening up our lives enough to allow him to change us from the inside out. He's not surprised by anything that you bring to the table. And he's not put off by it. So recognizing the love of Jesus means opening myself up to that love that meets me where I am. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if we're to embody that love, as we connect with the world around us, the people around us, that very same motivation and that very same movement should be ours. Jesus comes in the middle of the mess. So do we. Jesus engages people right where they are. So do we. And sometimes that's, um, it, it comes across in a way that's a little easier to us. Sometimes it's a lot more difficult for us. But we recognize that we're invited to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of the brokenness of the world around us. You know, today, um, around the world, there will be hundreds of millions of people who will celebrate communion. They will come to the table, and in a bunch of different forms and in a bunch of different settings, they will come to the communion meal and they will equally admit that they are in need of help. You'll have some of the richest people in the world and some of the poorest people of the world in line together. You have people who have all of their theological uh, I's dotted and T's crossed and everything figured out from their perspective, and you're going to have people who are saying, I just need Jesus and I don't know anything else, and they'll be in line together. You know, people who have their lives all ordered and structured, and it's the way it should be, quote-unquote. And you're going to have other people who are just full of mess and they're in line together. Why? Because when we come to the communion table, what we're saying is his body was broken because my life's been broken. Because I need it. If I could fix it myself, I wouldn't need to come to the communion table. But I can't. And so therefore, I come to receive We come and we take the cup. And by taking the cup, what we're saying is, if my sin was manageable and I could handle it, I would deal with it myself. But I can't. I need a savior. I need one who will come and forgive me of my sins. And so all across the globe today, and here at York Alliance for the next four weeks, we're gonna come to the communion table and we're gonna remember what's true. 
We're going to remember that he's been broken and his blood's been shed to invite us in, not our clean, sanitized, what we hope to be someday lives, but our lives as they are right now. We're going to receive from him. And so I'm going to invite you to respond in that way this morning, to come to the communion table and to receive.